We're going to get right into this uh, unusual but topical message this morning, and it's based off of what Pastor Dan had preached about uh, several weeks ago. You know, Dan had done a message on the importance of monuments and markers, being able to remember where we came from. You know, if we don't know why we're here or where we came from, then we won't know the direction that we should be going in the future. And that's so important. And we see with such projects like the 1619 Project, literally trying to rewrite our history and uh, build into our educational system this idea of America being a systematically racist nation and trying to foster literally a, a race war in our country. Uh, because that is the effective tool that can be used to try to stir up a, the, the uh, foundation of a Marxist utopia. You know, Marx's idea was to create friction. His original goal was using economic warfare, the property owners versus the non-property owners. Through that friction, eventually the non-property owners would rise up in revolution, throw off that existing system, and they could replace it with a Marxist utopia. Well, in America, everybody owns property. We all own cell phones and cars and houses, or at least the bank does. We make payments on them. We think we're property owners here in America. So that had never really worked well here. So out of the critical theory system, trying to look for division anywhere, doesn't matter whether it could be male versus or women versus male patriarchy, doesn't matter whether it be LGBT versus straight, uh, in America, the critical theory, the critical race theory has been the most susceptible to being used to exploit and cause, well, their hope is revolution. Literally, one of the old Marxist axioms is this, the issue is not the issue. The issue is the revolution. Doesn't matter what the issue is, they just want to create this explosion out of which they can throw off the existing system, which in our case happens to be a limited government constitutional republic, throw that off and replace it with a dictatorship, which is what they have in every other Marxist society. So we have to recognize uh, just what the battle is. And again, Dan was talking about the importance of remembering. So we're going to do that today with a message entitled America's Christian Heritage. We're going to begin with the reminder of God delivering Israel out of bondage. Of course, after 40 years, Moses had finally finished his leg of the journey, and they were on the east side of the Jordan preparing to enter into the promised land. It was that point that his job was done. Joshua was going to lead them in and help take over that land. And Moses, in his last official realm of responsibility, his last official act of duty, he basically gave the law again for the second time. It had been given the first time at Sinai. But that generation, because of their unfaithfulness, because of their disobedience, died wandering in the wilderness. Now their children were getting ready to go into the promised land. So God was reminding them of those covenant promises. And God warned them through Moses, said, you all beware, be careful, pay attention, because here's what's going to happen. You're going to get into the promised land and you're going to find out it's everything I said it was. It is going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. You are going to be on top of the world. Your economy is going to be thriving. You're going to be at peace with your neighbors. And if you're not careful, you're going to think you've done all this on your, on your own. You're going to have a tendency to forget all about me. And then you're going to wander down this, this path into idolatry. And when that happens, I'm going to judge you. So don't let it happen. 
As a matter of fact, beware that you don't forget about me. It was me that brought you miraculously out of bondage in Egypt. It was me that's led you for 40 years in the wilderness, and even the shoe leather on your feet didn't wear out. It's me that's leading you in to defeat a superior military and a superior mighty people. I'm giving you the land. Don't forget about me. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you ample opportunities so you can't. Hey, there's going to be seven feasts a year. Want everybody to come back to Jerusalem on those feasts. And during those feasts, you're supposed to remember me. Remember how I delivered you. Remember who I am as God. Remember who you are as a people. In fact, fact, I want you to begin right off the bat. When you cross over into the promised land, I want you to gather 12 stones. The head of each tribe, grab a stone out of the midst of the Jordan River, which I'm going to dry up for you to, to, to walk on in. And, and as soon as you get over on the other side uh, at Gilgal, I want you to build a, a memorial marker there with 12 stones. And, and, and then in future generations, when your children and, and you are walking along there and they say, Dad, why are these 12 stones stacked up here like this? That's going to give you another opportunity. Tell them all about the story. Tell them who I am as your God. Tell them who you are as, as God's people, why you're here, where you came from, and where you're supposed to go. Of course, you know what happened. The Jews didn't do a good job of that. They did go off into idolatry, and God judged them. Well, this is a biblical truth, ladies and gentlemen, something that we have forgotten in our culture. We no longer teach this in schools, and churches now believe that this is off limits. It's amazing to me a pastor can sit there and say, Jesus is Lord of my life. But we can't talk about this area of our lives in church. Folks, that does not make sense. That is nonsense. If Jesus is the Lord of all of your life, then there should be nothing off limits in church. Whatsoever you do, you do to the glory of God. But we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten where we came from. And that is by design. As I said a moment ago, this is clearly a biblical truth, but it hasn't been lost on the secular wisdom of the world. Karl Marx even said, a people that don't remember where they came from are easily conned. That's Paul's uh, translation of that statement. Now, there are two great lies that have been foisted upon America, especially over the last 60 to 70 years. Number one is the theory of evolution, that everything in order came out of disorder. Everything that we see was an accident. Folks, the psalmist says clearly, every day when you get up, everything that you look at declares the glory of God, declares the existence of God. When you walk outside today after church and you see the trees, you see the grass, you see animals, you see the sky... Everything declares the evidence of God's handiwork. When you go outside tonight and you gaze into the starry night at sky, it declares the existence of a creator. Something baked must need a baker. Something built must need a builder. Something painted must need a painter. Something created must have a creator. Cindy and I spent a lot of time in Florida over the last couple of years. Every time we were near a beach, we would make sure and spend some time at the beach. One time we were walking, I forget which community this was, and we came across this circle of seashells. It's marvelous to see the work of accidental randomness. (laughs) We were looking at that, and I said, baby, you know, it's amazing. Over thousands and thousands of years. The waves have washed up and the waves have receded. The waves have washed up and the waves have receded. And just by chance, through acts of randomness, this perfect circle was left here on the beach. Isn't Darwin amazing? 
I think the last thing I heard before she slapped me was, you're an idiot. (laughs) Now, folks, this is obviously design. And if this was obviously intentional design, how could just the I alone be the result of, of evolution and random chance? It can not be. But when your mind is deluded and your desire is godlessness, it's amazing the conclusions you will jump to. This man, one example, Francis Crick, brilliant man, was knighted in England for his work. The co-discoverer of DNA. As he did his research, he came to this conclusion as an evolutionist. He said, for life to have happened by chance is impossible. I would agree. After studying the complexity of the simple, simple genetic code, no way could this have happened by accident. Well, you're right on, Sir Crick. So what is your answer? Well, he came up with this conclusion. Life obviously didn't evolve first on earth. A highly advanced civilization became threatened by so-called, uh, by, became threatened, so they devised a way to pass on their existence. They genetically modified their DNA and sent it out from their planet on bacteria or meteorites with the hope that it would collide with another planet. It did, and that's why we're here. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not the man that teaches in your school. This is the man that writes the textbooks. This is a brilliant, brilliant man. But science is supposed to be experimentation, observation, and repeatability. What part of that qualifies as science? That is all theory and conjecture. has nothing to do with how we got here. What it shows is that he actually read a Superman comic book when he was a kid growing up. Because that's how Superman got here. But this idea of evolution is the first great lie that's been foisted upon our country. And the second is this, that America is a secular nation and was founded by atheists and deists. Why did this come about? Well, understand that in the 1980s, the left understood how potent the church could be. With the advent of the moral majority and the Christian coalition and the like of that, we saw Ronald Reagan elected office. We saw uh, conservatives being elected uh, to prominent offices in D.C. So they set about a strategy to try to uh, diffuse that. And they began to try to disconnect the history of America from our Christian moorings. And these two college professors named Dr. Kramnik and Dr. Moore wrote this textbook that's now used in our universities. It's called a godless, The Godless Constitution. What's really interesting and revealing is as you read the note sources page at the beginning of this book, it readily admits, now recognize this is a textbook. This is a college textbook. And they are admitting in their beginning notes, we have dispensed with the usual, and I would say expected, scholarly apparatus of footnotes. In other words, there's no footnotes, there's no endnotes, there's no way to document what we're about to teach you in this textbook. They go on to say, don't worry, we're both scholars. And if we do happen to make any mistakes, we take the credit for that. It's our fault, don't worry about it. Thank you, Dr. Fauci, for all of your mistakes that you're now taking the credit for. Folks, this is not a textbook. What kind of textbook have you ever seen that wasn't documented and footnoted? Just this one, when they're trying to foist a lie upon the 
uh, believing young people, the innocent young people that go to our colleges and pay money to get this education. So let's take the next few minutes and let's look at the actual history, documented history of our country. And let's ask this question, were our founding fathers really primarily atheists and deists? Well, let's look at this first exhibit that doesn't come from David Barton's vast library. This comes from that liberal organization called the Library of Congress that's been trying to deceive us with this biblical worldview all these years. What this painting depicts is the very first meeting of the very first Continental Congress at Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia, 1774. On September the 6th, they gathered together, and before they began business, it was discussed and determined that they needed to pray because without God's help, they were in a pickle. They were trying to decide how the colonies should respond to the illegal, intolerable acts that were being poured out upon the colonies by Parliament and the King of England. Again, they said, we've got to have God's help. Let's have a prayer meeting. And on that day, they didn't just gather together and pray. They brought in a minister to lead in the prayer service. The question was asked by a committed Christian from New York, John Jay. He said, wait a second, can we really all pray together since we are of so many different Christian denominations? Sam Adams, it is said, by the way, his brother John Adams recorded this historically. Sam Adams said, I am no bigot, sir. I will pray with any man of piety that is also a patriot. So they requested that a local, well-known Anglican, which was very unusual with Adams being a Puritan, suggesting that they ask for an Anglican preacher to come and lead in prayer service. But history records that Jacob Deshaies, came and led in what some estimate to be about a two-hour prayer meeting and Bible study that next morning, September the 7th, 1774. Now, in this picture, you see over here George Washington, the father of our country. You see the great patriot from Virginia, Patrick Henry. You see John Adams. You see Sam Adams from Massachusetts. By the way, most of these men, they didn't have Facebook most of these men had heard of each other, but had never met each other until this event. Over here you see John Jay wound up becoming the very first Chief Justice of the official Supreme Court under the Constitution. And there you've got Jacob Deshaies in the center of the background leading in this prayer service. Now let me ask you a question. Logically, why would a bunch of atheists and deists spend two hours reading a book that they didn't believe was divine praying to a God that they either didn't believe existed or didn't believe cared about them. Well, logically, a bunch of atheists and deists wouldn't do that. That actually sounds like something a bunch of at least professing committed Christians might think to do. As a matter of fact, General Washington's very first instruction as the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army issued this resolution. The general most earnestly requires and expects a due observance of those articles of war established for the government of the army which forbid profane cursing, swearing, and drunkenness. And in like manner, he requires and expects of all officers and soldiers not engaged in actual duty a punctual attendance to divine service to implore the blessings of heaven upon the means used for our safety and defense. Now, why on earth would a deist 
forbid his soldiers from cursing and taking the Lord's name in vain, and require going to church on Sunday and participating in daily devotional. Why would an atheist or a deist do any of those things? Well, I would say that an atheist and deist wouldn't care. But I might propose that a professing, committed Christian would do something like what you see on the screen. As a matter of fact, this is also from the Library of Congress. It's the rules and regulations for the United States Navy. It says this, the commanders of the ships of the 13 United Colonies are to take care that divine service be performed twice a day on board the ships, and a sermon preached on Sundays unless bad weather or other extraordinary accident prevents. And they shall be hurt, and if any shall be hurt to swear, curse, or blaspheme the name of God, the commander is strictly enjoined to punish them, and then spells out their offenses. Now, folks, let me ask a question. If our country was founded by atheists and deists, why would they care if somebody took the Lord's name in vain? Why would they require daily devotional service? Why would they require your attendance to a sermon on Sundays? Well, I would say an atheist or a deist would not care about any of that. But a committed Christian would. As a matter of fact, Sam Adams, the uh, firebrand of the American War for Independence, said this in 1772. He said, The right to freedom, being the gift of God Almighty, and the rights of colonists as Christians, may best be understood by reading and carefully studying the institutions of the great lawgiver and the head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. What a baffling thing for an atheist to write. What a crazy thing for a deist to suggest. Folks, doesn't sound like an atheist or deist to me. Sounds to me like a God-fearing Christian. As a matter of fact, that man John Jay, the first Supreme Court Chief Justice, said this, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. This is so well known factually that even the secular professor from New York University that did a study on the middle colonies as the birthplace of American religious pluralism concluded that at the time of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, 98% of the 3 million citizens of the 13 United Colonies were Protestant Christians. Wow, you don't hear that taught in public education. You hear that our forefathers were atheists and deists and didn't care about having God in any facet of our lives. Well, what's the history? How did all this get here? Well, recognize that about 16 years after the Reformation, the Reformation began, the Reformation still hadn't permeated and infiltrated the shores of England. King Henry VIII, as a matter of fact, was historically known as a great defender of the faith, of the Catholic faith, until he decided that he wanted to divorce his wife. He had been married to Catherine of Aragon for about over 20 years. She was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella who funded Columbus and his adventures to the New World. But she had been unable to bear a male heir to the throne for King Henry. And obviously, knowing that that's the wife's fault... He said he needed to divorce her. The Pope said, no, I don't think so. So King Henry said, forget you. I'm leaving the Church of Rome, and I'm starting my own church, the Church of England, and I'm going to make myself the head of it, and I'm going to divorce my wife. What a country, right? All right. 
So that's the birth of the Anglican Church. In order to complete that separation, it was suggested by his advisors that he publish the Bible in English instead of Latin. So he did. But something happened when he published the Bible in English in England. Englishmen began reading the Bible for themselves. And they discovered that much of the doctrine and dogma of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, was not in fact biblical. So there were two responses. One, you had a group that sought to purify the Church of England from inside the Church of England. We know of them as the Puritans. But there was another group that said, Church of England is a mess. We just need to come out from among them and be separate and establish our own local New Testament congregations. This group was called the Separatists. One group that we know of very well is this group called the Pilgrims. They were Separatists. At this point in time, understand what an established state church means. You've all heard of the term, the established church, or the establishment of church and state. In fact, that's in our Constitution. Uh, Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Like in England, an established state church was controlled by the king, and he controlled the bishops, and he controlled the message. And if you were a citizen of England, you were required to be a member of the Church of England. When you were baptized as a baby, you were written on the rolls of your local parish. Your attendance to church was required. Your tithe was required. That's what an established state church meant. And it was illegal to have a home Bible study or own a Bible or do anything outside the authority of the established state church. This group was breaking the law when they were having their own church services in Scrooby, England at, at Elder, Elder Bradford's uh, home. They were breaking the law. So they fled to the Netherlands. They ultimately came to the New World. But understand, as this picture, this painting hangs in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C., their life was centered on the Bible. They were devoted followers of Christ. They had a comprehensive biblical worldview that God spoke about every area of life including civil government. So when it came to establishing their local uh, New Testament churches, they looked at the pages of Scripture for how it should be done. When it came to establishing their own local civic, civil governments, they looked to the pages of Scripture for God's instruction on how it should be done. That was the birth seedling of the United States of America, Plymouth Colony, 1620. Now look at what the historian John Palfrey said about the pilgrims and the Puritan migration. He said they searched the Bible for instruction about everything. In fact, the things that we enjoy in America politically, in our constitutional republic, the things that make America exceptional come from the pages of Scripture and that's why America has been exceptional. Folks, when you do it the right way, when you do it God's way, it always works. When you decide to do it your own way, that's when we always make a mess out of things. But consider some of these things that we take for granted. The fundamental principle that all men are created equal was a biblical truth. That didn't come out of Europe. That didn't come out of old England. In old England, under King Henry VIII or King James, you had a class system. You had the aristocracy of the lords and nobles. And on top of it all was the king and the divine right of kings. And then you worked your way down through serfdom and servants and slaves. 
This idea came from the pilgrims, that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. The concept of natural law comes from the Bible. The definition of the family comes from the Bible. Our laws of morality come from the Bible. Ownership and private property rights. Again, that didn't come from old England. It was the king's navy and the king's forest and the king's deer and the king's dale. And you were the king's subject. The idea that we are all kings in our own castles, we all own our own property, came from the pages of Scripture. A right to a fair trial, no conviction without two or three witnesses, a punishment that fits the crime, i.e. an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, came from the pages of Scripture. The Republican form of government, that you're to choose out from among you capable men that fear God, love truth, and hate covetousness, and make them judges over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, and have them judge according to the rule of law, came from the pages of Scripture. In fact, the concept of a defined and written rule of law also came from the pages of Scripture. Would it surprise you? Not you in this church, because you already know this. But most in America wouldn't know this. You see, here's a copy of an election sermon that was preached before John Hancock, the governor of Massachusetts, and before the legislature of Massachusetts on May the 28th, 1788, by the Reverend David Parsons, pastor of Christ Church in Amherst. In that day, before the legislature began meeting, a pastor would come and address them and tell them what God expected out of them as servants of God to the people for good and what would happen to them if they didn't do their job. Well, Alice Baldwin wrote a book on the pastors that Dan talks about in the Black Robe Regiment, the pastors of the American War for Independence. These guys wrote these sermons on government. They were reproduced or printed and spread throughout the colonies where they became textbooks on politics. The reason those three million, with 98% of them being Protestant, those three million American colonists thought the way they did was because their pastors taught them a biblical world view. 98% were Protestant Christians. Brother Paul, were they all born again? I can't tell you that. I can't. We probably have maybe 550, 600 here all together this morning. I can't tell you who here is born again or not. You know, the Lord knows. I hope we all are. Well, out of that 98% Protestant Christians don't know if they were all saved or not, but they all at least professed to adhere to the God of the Bible and the truths which was the Bible held within its pages. In fact, schools taught this. At the time that those representatives from the 13 colonies were gathering to discuss, or the 13 states now, were gathering to discuss the Constitution The official Congress at that time, under the Articles of Confederation, was passing this requirement for the new territories which the United States was gaining in the Northwest Ordinance. And they had this requirement in Article 3. It said religion, now by the way, in this day and age, religion meant Christianity. 98% were Protestant Christians. So if you were asked, what religion are you? The answer was, oh, I'm a Baptist. What religion are you? Oh, I'm an Anglican. Oh, what religion are you? Oh, I'm a Methodist. It was understood that Christianity was the religion of America. This would be more like denomination. So religion meant Christianity. 
religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government. You had to have intelligent people. You had to have moral people. Okay, being necessary to good government, the happiness of mankind, we will encourage schools and education. Now, notice that the legislature is not taking control of education. Just saying, we encourage it. We stand before it. We support it. We're all for it. Whose responsibility is it to educate the children, by the way? Parents' responsibility. That's exactly right. But understand, schools taught this. As a matter of fact, this was the very first official textbook, other than the Bible, used in U.S. public education. It's called the New England Primer, published in 1690, used for several hundred years. Notice some of the lessons. And Remember, religion and the subsequent morality and knowledge. Look at some of the lessons. Pray to God, love God, fear God, serve God. Don't take God's name in vain. Don't swear. Uh, cheat not in your play. Play not with bad boys. Well, that just eliminates all of Congress right there. <laughs> Learning the alphabet. A, in Adam's fall, we send all. B, Heaven defined, the Bible mind. C, Christ crucified, for sinners died. D, the deluge drowned, the earth around. Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary for good government. As a matter of fact, look at the depth of the education in public schools. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Well, Christ as our Redeemer executes the office of prophet, a priest, and a king, both as a state of humiliation and exaltation. This was taught in education. Everybody knew this. It wasn't even questioned. Atheists and deists, my foot. The states practiced this. Now, on July 4, 1776, when we signed the Declaration of Independence, we went from being 13 British colonies to being 13 sovereign nations. 13 united states. And each state had its own constitution. Look at this as an example. In order to serve in public office in Delaware, before a person could serve, he had to make a profession of faith. I, Paul Blair, do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore. And I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testament, to be given by divine inspiration. You can join most modern churches today easier than you could serve in the legislature of one of the 13 United States. We say, Pastor, why is this important? Because if you were entrusted with governance, you had to be God-fearing. When no one was watching you, you had to know that the eyes of the Lord were watching you. That's why this was imperative everywhere. Here's one of the things that was unique. For example, as was demonstrated in Pennsylvania, they did have a religious test. You had to profess that God existed and the Bible was the Word of God. As far as what denomination you belong to, Pennsylvania was very, uh, was very cutting edge, leading edge. They said, we don't care what denomination as long as you fear God and call yourself a Christian. Well, that was what was interesting. That was the religious test. No atheists or agnostics could serve in office. Now, let me ask you this question. How could we have been founded by atheists and deists if in our very first state constitutions it was illegal to serve in office if you were an atheist? Let that sink in for a minute. When you're driving home today, that'll come to you. Go, hey, that was a good point. <laughs> so our schools taught it. Our states practiced it. Our courts upheld it. 
Massachusetts Supreme Court, 1799, Runkle versus Weinmiller, they made this declaration by our form of government. The Christian religion is the established religion. Remember what an established church meant? Okay, you had the Church of England, that one denomination. What was so unique about America is you could be Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian. doesn't matter the denomination as long as you were a Christ follower. Christianity, that was the thing that was unique. Christianity is the established religion. And all sects and denominations of Christians are placed upon the same equal footing. It's amazing that the Massachusetts Supreme Court would make that ruling if we were founded by atheists and deists that wished to a secular society. In 1826, this is one of my favorites. This man named Abner Updegraff was convicted of taking the Lord's name in vain and saying that Jesus really wasn't God in the flesh. And he was arrested for that. And his defense was the First Amendment. And according to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, said blasphemy is an attempt to undermine the very foundation of America. Therefore, it's akin to treason if you try to undermine the Lord Jesus. So a First Amendment right doesn't apply to you because you aren't a believer in the first place. Now, you'd get blown out of the water on social media today if you made that stand. But understand that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said that very thing. Christianity, general Christianity, is and always has been a part of the common law. The laws and institutions are built on the foundation of reverence for Christianity. So if you attacked Christianity, you were attacking the foundation of America. Now, in the, finally, I threw this one in because it's the U.S. Supreme Court, 1892, said this, we are a religious people, this is a Christian nation. So our schools taught it, our states practiced it, our courts upheld it, and Congress believed it. You have likely seen this in our presentations before. Dan and I both covered it. But this was suggested as a candidate to become the great seal of the United States, July 4th, 1776. This suggestion was made, by the way, this is documented in the Library of Congress, was made by two of the least religious, supposedly, of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, along with John Adams. Of course, you see in the middle, you see the Egyptian army drowning in the Red Sea. You see Moses and the Israelites on the seashore. In the background center, you see the Shekinah, the glory of God, the pillar of flame, the pillar of a cloud. And around the outside, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Isn't it interesting that a suggestion made for the great seal of the United States was the Exodus story as our great seal? Folks, we weren't founded by atheists and deists. We were founded on a biblical worldview. Were we perfect? No. Are we perfect now? No. Will we ever be? No. But there's been no other country ever in history that has sought to correct its wrongs quicker than we have. And, oh, by the way, what is no longer being taught in our school system, as man since Nimrod has sought to run the world, there has been one nation that has actually had the ability to do so. At the end of World War II, we had produced some 90 aircraft carriers during the war, our economic, our industry was rolling. We were producing military material at a rate that was second to none. We had troops under arms around the world, and we were the only country on the planet that had the atom bomb. If anybody wanted to rule the world in 1945, America could have. 
We could have gone over and taken care of Stalin right then if we had wanted to. But instead of ruling the world, America chose to rebuild it. Don't tell me about how wicked America is. Yeah, we have made bad decisions just like every other country in the world. But we are the only country that literally had the opportunity to do the wrong thing and chose to do the right thing. Now you say, Brother Paul, why does all this matter? Well, as I said a moment ago, everybody has sought to run the world. Every man aspires to consolidate power. But it was God's design, as He did in Babel, of separating the power, including the separation of government and the realms of responsibility of government. And as you'll see in these next few quotes, as we come to a close, you will see that our founders embraced these same realms of government. And you will see, as we look at this, that these work in inverse proportion to each other. In other words, the more self-government you have, people knowing right and wrong and choosing to do the right thing, and the stronger our families are, moms and dads raising their kids in the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, uh, moms and dads disciplining their children if they get out of line, the stronger our churches are taking care of issues of charity and, and moral accountability, then you don't need much self, civil government. You don't need a lot of prisons. You don't need a lot of police officers because you have moral people that are obeying the law, doing what is right. But if you don't have strong self-government, you don't have strong families, you don't have strong uh, uh, churches, then what you have is a bunch of crazy, uh, moralless pagans running around doing whatever they want. And boy, you better have a lot of police and you better have a lot of prisons to take care of that situation. Now look at John Adams. He made this statement as the second president. He said, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions that are unbridled, notice these two words again, by morality and religion. We saw that in the Northwest Ordinance. Morality, religion, morality, and knowledge, critical for good government and happiness of mankind. Right here, John Adams. Morality and religion. Our Constitution, in other words, a small, supposedly, small, limited general government. We don't need a lot of government as long as we have moral people. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is not adequate to the government of any other. Matter of fact, Robert Winthrop, who was from Massachusetts, was the Speaker of the House. Now imagine, we've got that witch Pelosi there now. This was one time the Speaker of the House. Winthrop said this, All societies of men must be governed in some way or the other. The less they may have of a stringent state government or civil government, the more they must have of individual self-government. They, the less they rely on public law or physical force, the more they must rely on private moral restraint. Men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by a power within them or by a power without them. A police officer make it so they obey. Either by the Word of God or by the strong arm of man. Either by the Bible or the bayonet. It may do for other countries and other governments to talk about the state supporting religion. But here, under our own free institutions, it is the religion which must support the state. This was common sense. Moral, self-governing people. 
Remember, I referenced a moment ago the influence that pastors had on the political uh, situation in America. Well, they also were key in the educational systems as well. This was called Alden's Citizen Manual. It was published by the Reverend Joseph Alden in 1869. I just want to point out one question in passing that confirms the point that I just made. Right here on question 23, do laws which restrain a man from doing wrong infringe on his liberty? No, because no one has a right to do wrong. President Washington said this as he retired from office. Remember, after spending a lifetime serving sacrificially this country he loved so much, after being part of the Continental Congress, after being general of the Continental Army, after leading through the War for Independence, after going back to be president of the Constitutional Convention, after serving as the first president under the U.S. Constitution, he finally said, enough. Let me go home to Mount Vernon. I'm done. But he wrote a love letter to the country. And it said this, or one section said this, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity. Notice these two words again. Religion and morality are what? Indispensable. What does indispensable mean? Can't do without them. Religion and morality, like two pillars on which the roof of this constitutional republic is supported are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism. In other words, don't call yourself a patriot. You're a traitor. If you would labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, religion and morality. So if you're trying to rip religion and morality out of America, you're a traitor. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Ladies and gentlemen, America has been exceptional. We've been the most free, most prosperous, most respected, most sought-after country in the world. We're the only country in 2,000 years of Christian history where Christians haven't been persecuted because of their faith. America was exceptional because America was built on a biblical foundation. And two key points to remember on this statement that are spelled out in our Declaration of Independence from a biblical worldview, our rights come from God and not the government. And from a biblical worldview, truth is not arbitrary. Truth is established by our Creator. It's called the laws of nature and nature's God. Now, is everybody still with me at this point? We're coming in for a landing. This is where the rubber meets the road. 1962 and 1963, the U.S. Supreme Court illegally, they had no authority to do this. It wasn't under their realm of civil government. Education was under the authority of family government. They illegally acted and took prayer and the Bible out of public education. Well, I say, Pastor, that's not true. As long as they're giving tests in school, children will be praying in school. Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> Pastor, my kid can take his Bible. In fact, they have their take their Bible to school once a year day. No, the point here is that up to this point, as you saw with the New England primer, the Bible had been the foundation of our education. With this ruling, we now had taken the Bible out as the foundation for our education. So no longer did we have our rights coming from God, which is part of a biblical worldview. No longer did we have absolute truth, which is part of our biblical worldview. But now that we had taken the Bible out, 
Now that that was no longer the foundation of education, now that we had gone from a God is worldview to a God isn't worldview, then government must be the grantor of rights because there is no God and we've brought in Marxism and there is no absolute truth. Truth evolves over time, which is how we have evolved to the incredible wisdom we now have of some 57 genders rather than two. And we've welcomed in Charles Darwin. John Adams wrote this as a young man. This is right at the tail end of the Great Awakening. As pastors were recognizing the infringements on liberty, and the pastors were preaching, the Black Robe Regiment was organizing committees of correspondence, and there was a great reverence and fear of God, and, and literally, you know, and we all know in times of crisis is when we're on our face before God. When things are going well is when we usually tell God, you can take the week off, I've got it under control, and then we make a mess out of things and we're back on our faces again. But here John Adams made this statement about his dream. He said, suppose a nation in some distant region, and understand the connection, remember, religion and morality, self-government, we're either governed by a power within or we're controlled by a power without. We're either controlled by the Bible or controlled by the bayonet. Okay, Adams says this, suppose a nation in some distant region, theoretically, should take the Bible for their only law book. And suppose that every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. We would call that moral self-government. Suppose every citizen of society was governed morally by biblical precepts. Then we see the fruit of the Spirit. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, and industry, to justice, kindness, and love towards his fellow men, to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia! By the way, that's how he spelled it. What a paradise this region would be. Everybody still with me? Remember the relationship? Self-government, family government, church government, civil government. When it works in proper order, you don't need much civil government. We're all moral. We're self-governing. We're making the right decisions. Why? Because it's the right decision. No man has a right to do the wrong thing. We all have unalienable rights because we're created in the image of God. But we don't have special rights because we're gay or because we're black or because we're white. We all have unalienable rights as creations of God. We also are all responsible to make good decisions. That's called self-government. Hey, look at his dream. Now look at what happens after 60 years when you've ripped the Bible out when we've taught Marxism gradually and incrementally increasingly, and the same thing with atheism, we call that evolution. This is what we've got today. Does anybody see a connection? Does anybody see a problem? Do you see why we've wandered down this road? We have forgotten where we've come from. As Pastor Dan said a few weeks ago, those memorial stones those memorial markers. Folks, we are in a pickle right now. I honestly have seen the potential of this day coming for 15 years. That's why Dan and I have been so passionately working as we have been the last 15 years. The things that have happened the last 12 months have blown my mind at how quickly it's all happened here in the United States. Because I, I didn't think we were this ripe, really. 
I mean, you, you heard me say last May when this thing began, and we were back in church by May. I spelled out in a message called Connecting the Dots. I said what we're witnessing is a full-blown Marxist coup. We are, we are witnessing a takedown of America. If we were reading about this in the newspaper and said, oh, this is happening in some third world country, we'd say, oh, my goodness, the Marxists are at it again. They're going to win. Folks, they haven't won yet. And the battle is still raging. But as we are going to be continuing to push, the defense is going to have to be at the state level where states tell D.C. no when D.C. acts illegally and outside the limits of their constitutionally defined authority. And at the same time, we have got to begin reminding our children where we came from, who we are, how we got here, and why it's important. So on this Memorial Day, I hope that you have enjoyed this brief but pretty thorough walk down memory lane and understand that we weren't founded by atheists and deists. The reason that America has been exceptional was not by accident. It was by design. And unless we repent and remember and return, we are heading over the falls. I just hope it's not too late. You know, they say at one point in the Niagara River, you may be a mile from the falls, but it's too late. You're going over. You're not there yet, but you're going over. There's no stopping it. I hope and pray that we're not there yet. And I get encouraged when I remember this. We still have God on the throne. And God does His greatest work when the hour's darkest. When we get to the point that we look to heaven and say, God, we, we, well, we made a mess. If you don't act, we're in trouble. That's generally a Red Sea moment where God steps in. Dan has recounted before in some of his messages talking about how God has miraculously intervened and interacted. It's been amazing. You know, from the pilgrim landing, from the Spanish Armada being defeated in 1588, to the pilgrims being blown off course and landing where they did, to, to uh, the Battle of Long Island with General Washington escaping under the fog, to the Battle of Midway when we just guessed right and accidentally stumbled across the, the you know, four aircraft carriers. The It's not lucky. It's either we're really, really lucky where we need to all go buy lottery tickets today because we're just that lucky, or... God has had a plan, and we have played a part of that plan for a period of time. Now, there's two promises. Sorry, Genesis 12 says, Blessed, I will bless those that bless thee and curse those that curse you. Uh, That's a promise to how we treat Israel. And if you disagree with me, please go back and watch this morning's Sunday school and watch last Sunday's message. Yes, Israel in the land today is pagan. No surprise. Ezekiel said that. He said, God said, I'm going to bring you back in the land. You're going to be a mighty army, but there will be no spirit within you. And Armageddon is when those remaining Jews are going to get it. Get it. Well, they're going to get it. They're going to, they're going to get it here too. But that, we've been blessed for that. And we've also been blessed because Psalm 33, 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And as you have seen, our Gentile forefathers, at least to a large degree, attempted to construct this country on the Scripture, and we have been the beneficiaries of it. May we not be the generation that loses it.